Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Professor Przanowski, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Michigan Minds. I'm very excited to talk with you today. So can you start by introducing yourself and sharing with us a bit about your work at the University of Michigan? Sure. Uh, I'm Aaron Przanowski. Uh, I'm a professor of law here at Michigan, uh, and I focus primarily on intellectual property law uh, with a particular emphasis on copyrights and trademarks. So those are the things that I teach. Uh, and also uh, a big part of my my research focus. Thank you. So can you talk a little bit more about your research? Sure. Um, my work falls, I think, primarily into sort of two categories. I think and write about how communities of creators kind of use social norms to informally govern the the process of creating and adapting and sharing their expressive work. So I've written about the tattoo industry, for example. I've I've written a bit uh, about uh, circus clowns. Uh, That's a different story. Um, But most of my work really kind of examines this intersection between intellectual property and personal property. So you know, how do we balance the rights of creators against the rights of the consumers who buy and use and interact with uh, goods, especially in the digital economy? You know, what does it mean to own something, whether it's um, an ebook or it's a software enabled vehicle or home appliance, um, you know, like a like a refrigerator when it's really driven by uh, software in a way that kind of gives the manufacturer some degree of kind of ongoing control over that object after it's been purchased. Wonderful, thank you. So as an expert in this area of research, can you briefly explain what digital ownership is and the trade-offs that occur when choosing to purchase, for example, a book online instead of a physical copy? Yeah, so I think to really understand why things get complicated in the digital ownership space, it's useful to sort of contrast that with the more familiar notion of ownership we have when it comes to you know tangible goods. Um, with tangible goods, I think the model is really familiar. It's really clear. We understand what it means to own a, a physical object. Right? If I go to the bookstore and I buy a physical book, I know that I have the right to keep that book for as long as I want it. I know I have the right to resell it if I want, to lend it to a friend, to give it away, to throw it out and recycle it, you know, use it however I see fit. Digital goods really don't operate under those same rules, unfortunately. Rights really aren't defined by property law, but, you know, according to most courts that have looked at this question, those rights are going to be determined by license agreements, right? Those like thousands of words long documents that we all click, I agree to without ever reading. Uh, And I'm not here to criticize people for not reading them, right? They are intentionally difficult to read. They're intentionally long and confusing. And so as a result, no one actually bothers to read them. 
if they did read them, they would find out that their rights as consumers are far more limited, far more restricted than they are for those physical objects. So you buy an ebook from Amazon, let's say, you're not allowed to give it away. Uh, you're not allowed to transfer it. You're not allowed to lend it to someone. You're not allowed to resell it. You might not even get to keep that book. Um, so for example, uh, several years ago now, Amazon got in a dispute with a publisher about who had the right to actually sell certain books. And so they suspended sales of those books until they figured this out. Uh, that's fine. They also remotely deleted these books from the Kindles of people who had purchased them. Uh, and sort of, you know, ironically, one of the books that uh, fell into this whole dispute was George Orwell's 1984. Uh, so you buy a copy of 1984, download it to your Kindle, and you wake up the next day and it's disappeared, right? That can't happen with physical books. So it's, I think we see a real difference there in terms of reliability, control, uh, and kind of ultimately the, the consumer's independence with respect to those items. And I think that's part of the reason we've seen over the last decade, this huge increase uh, in the music space in the sales of physical objects, right? Vinyl record sales have gone through the roof. CD sales uh, have also really accelerated over the last few years. And so I think that tells us something about this kind of um, persistent desire on the parts of consumers to like really own the things that they interact with. So I see that as a, a kind of promising sign. Thank you. And on a recent Wired podcast, you talked about why buying something means less than it used to. So can you expand on this idea and provide a few examples of what you mean? Yeah. So when we think about buying something, right, that language comes from this sort of tangible analog era where the word buy or the word own had a really clear and consistent meaning really kind of across the consumer economy. Um, today, when you see those words, I think there's a really big gap between what consumers think they're getting when they buy a digital good and what they actually get. Uh, so my friend and co-author, uh, Chris Hoofnagel and I, um, a few years ago, did this study where we created a sort of uh, fictitious online marketplace that sold physical and digital goods and asked consumers what they thought they were getting when they engaged in those transactions. And it turned out that a lot of people who were quote unquote buying ebooks or digital music or digital movies really thought they were getting a lot of the same rights that they got with the physical goods. They thought they could give them away to friends. They thought that they could um, you know, let people borrow them. They thought they could resell them. Maybe most importantly, they thought they got to keep them. Um, and so that mismatch, I think, has been there for a while. I think it it persists today. Um, there's actually some class action lawsuits going on right now against Apple and Amazon, alleging that when they use this buy now language, they're actually engaged in false advertising, right? They're promising consumers one thing, and it turns out that's not what the consumers are actually getting. There are a lot of people who say, hey, I bought this movie from Apple on my Apple TV, six months ago and I went to play it and now it's gone. 
And Apple says, well, yeah, our license with that uh, particular studio expired for that title. And so we can't offer it anymore. Um, did you really buy something if it has this ability to just sort of disappear without notice? I, I think that's a real problem that we've got to that we've got to work through. So I think that's probably the clearest example of how buying means something different today than it meant, you know, 20 years ago. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. So what issues can arise with digital ownership that consumers should be aware of involving user constraints, permanence, and privacy? So yeah, I think the most obvious issue here is the one I just described. The thing you buy might just kind of disappear unceremoniously in a you know puff of digital smoke one night uh, while, while you're asleep. That's not the only thing that can happen, though. So we see the 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 sellers of digital goods, and I'm not just talking about digital media here, but also, you know, like I mentioned, your all your smart appliances and your electronics and your smartphone and your vehicle, all these things that have network connections and software code. Um, all of those sorts of goods can be sold now with sort of strings attached to them in various ways. So. Uh, printer companies, I think, are one of the kind of worst offenders here. You know, you go out and you buy a, a printer, um, you know, so you can you can print out documents at home. And the seller of that device wants to be able to stop you from refilling the empty ink cartridges yourself because they make all their money selling you ink, not selling you printers. Uh, or they don't want you to be able to buy cheap third-party cartridges for your printer. So they use software code to try to lock down the device. Uh, lately, there have been complaints from consumers who say, uh, my printer won't scan because it's out of ink, right? Why do you need ink to scan a document? Because they programmed it that way, right? Um, the other thing that printer manufacturers do, at least some of them, is they basically pre-program a fixed number of pages that your printer can print before it just shuts down altogether, right? Um, and that's a real problem that, that consumers find out about long after they've made this, uh, this purchase, right? So those are some of the ways that we see those restrictions being imposed. Uh, car manufacturers have also kind of jumped into this strategy of we're not just going to sell you the device, but we're going to figure out a way to keep extracting money from you after the fact, right? So you go out and you buy a BMW, and then you find out that if you want to have heated seats in your BMW, you've got to pay them $18 a month, um, you know, for the duration of the time you own the vehicle. Those kinds of issues, I think, really frustrate uh, consumers and are really inconsistent with this idea of uh, of ownership. There's a sense that if you buy something, you ought to be kind of operating independently from the seller. But that's just a, a really complicated dynamic today because the line between products and services has gotten really blurry. Um, you know, my car gets over the air software updates. Uh, I wake up one morning and it tells me that it's installed a new operating system in my car. And my first thought is like, I hope it turns on. <laughs> um, and then it's like, oh, great. They added some you know, new little bell or whistle. I guess I'm happy about that. But I'm also really nervous about the idea that you know, if something goes wrong, 
um, you know, somebody else could basically brick my car overnight. And I'm, I'm not super enthusiastic about that prospect. Thank you so much for providing those examples. In a book you co-authored titled The End of Ownership, you explain that introducing aspects of private property and ownership into the digital marketplace would offer both legal and economic benefits, but most importantly, it would affirm our sense of self-direction and autonomy. So can you share a bit more about this idea? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate the importance of property, right? I'm not here to tell people that private property is the most important value in our society. But I think it does do some really important things for people, right? Part of what property gives us, what ownership gives us, is a, is a sense of independence in the world, right? A sense that we don't have to ask permission. We don't have to rely on third parties that might not share our best interests. Um, owning a car, right, I think is a good example. Owning a car means that you get to go where you want, when you want. You don't have to borrow a car from someone else. You don't have to you know, rely on Uber. You're not at the whims of other people, right? And part of what that does is that it, it, it protects you from kind of exploitation in the marketplace. There's no surge pricing when you own your own vehicle, right? I mean, one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is that, you know, Uber and Lyft have gone from heavily subsidizing their rides to make them really attractive uh, so that consumers become dependent on them. And also they put out their, put their competitors in the taxi industry out of business. And then they jack the prices way up, right? I think everybody's experienced this over the past five years or so. Um, so ownership is a way of protecting yourself against those kind of shifts in the marketplace. That is not to say that ownership is always the best answer. You know, there are economic, there are environmental reasons that we ought to encourage more sharing and cooperation, right? Carpools are great. Um, it's not the case that everybody needs to own their own vehicle. Public transportation is great, right? There's a big advantage to putting, you know, 60 people on a bus instead of having 60 people driving around in their own vehicles. But I think sometimes we confuse the, the sharing economy with actual sharing, and those are two very different things, right? When those kind of distributed models are mediated by for-profit firms, I think we have to recognize there's a kind of inherent trend towards exploitation, um, both of consumers and of workers. And so um, I'm a little bit skeptical of those kinds of solutions when they are you know, formalized through some kind of you know, profit-seeking entity. I'm a lot more comfortable with sharing when it's like a kind of genuine community-based uh, effort. Thank you. So what do you think can be done, um, if anything, for companies to start introducing aspects of private property and ownership into digital products? Or are there any steps that consumers can take? So I think we have to recognize that there are some like really strong economic incentives for firms to resist the idea of consumer property. You know, in the copyright space, which is where I do you know, kind of most of my work and most of my thinking, there has been a hostility towards consumer ownership for well over a century. 
back in 1908, there was a case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court that focused on whether or not book publishers uh, can impose price limitations on resale of their books, right? So they tried to publish a book uh, that had a minimum resale price built into it, kind of a precursor to the license agreements that we see today. And the court struck that down and said, no, you don't get to impose those restrictions. If somebody buys your book and they want to resell it for a price that's lower than the price that you would prefer, you just don't get to control that, right? We've seen that from copyright holders. Every time there's sort of a new technology out there that gives consumers greater control over uh, these sorts of products, right? Uh, so they wanted to, you know, shut down VHS uh, rental stores back in the 1980s. They wanted to shut down uh, people who were renting video games. Uh, you know, and this continues today. We see this sort of uh, this sort of hostility. So those economic pressures have been there for a long time to try to capture or eliminate those, those sorts of secondary markets. What do we do to get companies to see the light here? I think the answer is a combination of pressure from the public, from legislatures, and from regulators. And we're actually starting to see some of that work uh, pay off now, right? So I mentioned this class action case against Apple. If that's successful, I think that's going to shift Apple's behavior. The threat of that litigation has already shifted the behavior of other companies. So I get emails from Disney every once in a while, right, where they've got a new movie out. And they want you to pay for that movie, but they don't use the word buy. They don't use the word own. They say things like, add this to your digital collection. That feels like a more honest way of characterizing those sorts of uh, transactions. I'll, I'll give you one other example of where this public pressure is starting to pay off. Um, just recently, Apple came out in favor of a pending piece of legislation in the California legislature that falls into the broad uh, category of, of a right to repair law. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about what that means. But Apple has opposed this sort of legislation in states across the country at the federal level for a decade or more at this point, right? And what these laws would do is essentially make it easier for people who own Apple devices and lots of other devices to either take them to an independent repair shop to be repaired or to do those repairs themselves. Um, and Apple fought tooth and nail against this kind of legislation for a long time. And now they have realized that they're not gonna win this fight. And so rather than being sort of dragged along uh, against their will, they tried to jump out in front of it and say, we, we actually support this legislation. So maybe, you know, maybe they look like less of a bad guy. I don't think they're gonna look like a good guy here, but they might look less evil than they have uh, over the past a few uh, uh, few years. I say this, uh, you know, as we're talking, uh, and you know, I'm using an Apple laptop and an Apple phone. Uh, even if you, you know, uh, criticize the company's policies, uh, their their products are uh, perhaps hard to avoid. So I think those are some uh, some of the ways that we can start to see companies shift their perspective. It is through uh, relentless and persistent pressure uh, through kind of every mechanism available.
Um, and so I, I did want to talk about your recent and ongoing research that you mentioned, The Right to Repair, which is also the title of a book you authored. So can you explain this concept and share a few key messages from this work? Yeah, so the basic idea of the right to repair is that if you as a consumer go out and buy a product, you buy a new refrigerator, you buy a new smartphone, you buy a new car, and something goes wrong with it, you should be able to have it repaired in whatever way you think is most effective or most attractive for you. That might be taking it back to the manufacturer. There's something wrong with your iPhone and you want to take it to the Apple store and hand it to the folks at the Genius Bar. Great. Go ahead and do that, right? If instead you'd rather save some money and take it to the independent repair shop uh, down the street or near your office, I think you ought to have the right to do that as well. Or, you know, if you're a handy person, you're not scared of technology and you think all this thing needs is a new battery, I can swap the battery out myself, um, then you should be able to get your hands on the tools and the instructions and the replacement parts that you need to do that. And the manufacturer shouldn't be able to prevent you from, from taking those steps. But we see lots of manufacturers, right? A Apple had some really strict policies for a long time that they've backed off on to some extent. Um, but this isn't just a problem for consumer goods. This is a problem, for example, that farmers across the country deal with on a regular basis. John Deere, the, the biggest manufacturer of farming equipment in the US, uh, imposes all sorts of software-based and, and kind of ultimately intellectual property-based restrictions on the ability to repair their devices. So a farmer goes out, spends $800,000, $900,000 on a piece of agricultural equipment, and they need it to be fixed tomorrow when something goes wrong because they've got you know crops that need to be harvested or they have seeds that need to be planted. And John Deere says, well, the only person that can really fix your tractor is someone from our authorized dealership who happens to be 500 miles away, and maybe they can get to you in a week or two, right? That's not a, that's not a satisfying answer from the farmer's perspective. So the right to repair is trying to sort of restore some of those rights that come from ownership to consumers. So I see it as a kind of subset of the broader digital ownership debate but focused on this very specific activity of repair. Thank you. And at a hearing on July 18th in the U.S. House of Representatives, um, you spoke about your research and the right to repair, um, and you argued that Congress should act to preserve the rights of consumers to repair items they own, and argued that a federal-level approach to enact laws supporting the right to repair would be most effective. So can you discuss this approach and its role in protecting consumers' property? Yeah, so the right to repair debate's been going on in a really active way since about 2011 or 2012, when the state of Massachusetts, um, oddly, both through its legislature and through a ballot initiative, enacted an automotive right to repair law that basically said, if you're a car maker, you can't refuse to sell replacement parts and tools and provide documentation to independent repair providers, right? And that became a model that's been adopted nationwide over the last uh, decade or so. 
since then, we've seen successful efforts in a number of states to pass state level right to repair legislation. So that's happened in New York, in Minnesota. Uh, it's happened in Colorado. And I think, fingers crossed, it's about to happen in California, which I think would be really significant. And I'm a big supporter of these state laws. I have testified in support of the, those bills when they were pending in state legislatures. And I'm really happy to see them passed. On the other hand, um, I don't think my right to repair my smartphone or my tractor ought to, you know, ought to be determined based on whether I live in Michigan or Minnesota, right? These are uh, products that are sold on a national and international market. And I think it would be useful both for consumers and frankly, for the manufacturers, if we had consistent, uniform national rules about what the obligations are that manufacturers owe to their consumers and about what freedoms uh, consumers have with respect to their devices. And so I think it would be wonderful to see Congress step in here and make the sort of common sense changes to intellectual property law uh, and to other bodies of law that would really facilitate those sorts of rights for consumers. Um, this is something that Congress, I think, does have some appetite for, right? It's still really difficult to get any kind of legislation through um, the, the federal uh, legislature. But uh, this hearing that you mentioned, I think, demonstrated that there is uh, a sense, a growing sense among uh, members of Congress that this is a real problem, that there are potential solutions. And I think they're hearing the complaints of their constituents. And frankly, they all use technology too, right? Um, they understood this issue. I think a lot of them have had their own frustrations uh, around the, the challenges and the expense of repair in the modern economy. And so that I think is, is a promising sign. But uh, that said, the kind of inertia that you have to overcome uh, to get something actually passed in, in Congress is uh, a, a, pretty, a pretty daunting challenge. Thank you. And as our podcast comes to a close, we often like to ask our faculty experts, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from our conversation today? So I think it's easy when you're first kind of confronted with these issues that I've been talking about to feel really deflated, to feel frustrated, to feel sort of powerless. Um, I taught a seminar at the law school in the last academic year about the right to repair. And students, I think, really enjoyed our conversations. But basically every week they came in and said, hey, uh, this is all really depressing. When are you going to tell us some good news? And my answer was like, never. <laughs> uh, there is no good news, but we're going to learn to like confront and manage the, the discomfort here as we think about these, these kinds of issues, right? So um, despite that sense of powerlessness, right? When you're, you're, you're talking about how do we change the policies of a three trillion dollar company right the most valuable company on the on the planet uh earth um and the good news is you can it just takes a long time and a lot of effort from a lot of people 
what people can do, I think, in their own lives, though, is actually really simple. It's think more carefully about your choices. Uh, think more carefully about the long-term implications of those little things that we all do every day. Uh, do you want to pay Apple or Spotify every month for literally the rest of your life in order to access music? Maybe you do. If you do, then that's great, and, and you should continue doing that. Um, there's also, beyond the kind of individual level, um, a kind of collective impact that I think is really important for people to confront. One thing we haven't talked much about is the sort of environmental impact of this kind of disposable consumerism that we're promoting here, that companies are promoting, uh, especially with respect to their resistance to repair. Um, you know, just because the iPhone comes in yellow now does not mean that you have to go buy one. It certainly doesn't mean that you have to throw away your old phone or even recycle your old phone. Recycling is certainly better than throwing things out, but recycling has lots of problems that people don't always recognize. And so I think it's just a matter of being more aware of the trade-offs that we're engaging in. What are you losing um, in the trade-off between you know, ownership and kind of the low cost, convenient uh, kind of subscription or rental model that seems to be so prevalent. And I think once people start to see that issue, they're going to be more reflective about those choices. I'm not here to like tell anybody how to live their life or what choices they ought to be making, but I do want people to, to recognize that they're engaging in those trade-offs. So I think that's for me, the key takeaway. Absolutely. Well, Professor Przanowski, your research and expertise is so valuable and insightful. So thank you very much for sharing it with us today and taking the time to talk with me. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.